0: Welcome to Time Team Tea Time. Very very nice to see you again. I have very nice memories of you appearing on Time Team and and meeting up with us. Had you had any contact with archaeology before you came on a Time Team? Had it appeared in your earlier career?
1: No, it's uh, you know I think there's a point where uh, I, I, where I very much went from. Being, when I first went to Sussex University, I was going to study English Literature and there was a point then when I was absolutely converted to history and from then on I was really locked on to documents and history and reading of the records and understanding the records. And I, although I saw the Time Team on television, of course, like a viewer like anybody else, I, I had a, a, a genuine interest in in a sense, the buried record as well as the written record, but uh, it never occurred to me to actually go anywhere and dig stuff up. And so, Time Team was a, a revelation for me, and you know, it stayed with me as a very powerful experience at the time, but also as uh, a wonderful way of, of, in a sense, being in history in a way that you can't, you are imaginatively when you're looking at the written record but to actually be at a building especially if it's been hidden or buried actually to step on the very ground or to find material things that was fantastic it really was.
0: I, I remember reading somewhere that you made a reference to the carving in Ludlow Castle that was supposed to have been done by Arthur and he uh, had done a carving, and I remember you saying it was sort of layers of reality. The carving is legend, the sketch is history, and the thought they carved, it was carved by Arthur, was fiction. And it's a sort of multiple level of things, isn't it?
1: That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And I think that's what I feel about it, that at the very, at the very end of the chain of understanding and thinking about it, there is a thing. That's what's so wonderful, both about archaeology and about history, that there is something did happen and we can find ways into it and we can find ways of understanding it. And in the course of that, we may very well have to get our hands dirty and we may very well have to go to the place where we think it happened. But there is, at the very end of it, a reality, uh, uh, an experienced reality
0: and i always remember uh, we had a sort of little conversation in which i was uh, trying to suggest something i'd said to roman historians which was one artifact was worth several historical theories Mm -hmm. but i i think i was being a bit sort of it's it's archaeologically arrogant really
1: um you know it it depends doesn't it it depends on the artifact and it depends on the theories that like they're not all equal like during my time with time team you know when i was present on a, a couple of digs, sometimes somebody would be very enthusiastic about a bit of a tile and i would go like it's not doing it for me i'm glad we found it but if it doesn't signify something more than a bit of a tile it's just a bit of a tile to me whereas uh you know there are some historical theories which are genuinely illuminating which opened doors to other things. Um, something um, as simple as, for instance, the reason that there are not a lot of women in the historical record is not because they weren't doing anything, it is what was recorded. And just, if you take that as a theory, it just opens up everything, archaeology as well. So I think it depends really on the, th- uh, it depends on the theory and the, on the artefact, but I absolutely take your point that sometimes something from the made record or the built record just completely opens it all.
0: I'm going to sort of start your time team journey um, with the second program you did, which was Groby Old Hall, which I remember very well, and one of your, my, my favorite characters of yours, Elizabeth Woodville from History. My goodness, what a story. That was, and in, in the White Queen, I think it was absolutely fantastic the way that that woman threaded through history um, where, how, did you, how did you first discover or uncover Elizabeth Woodward that met Woodville that made her such a, an important character? well,
1: one of the wonderful things about writing women 's history is you spend a lot of time finding connections that nobody's observed because they weren't very interested in them because it was women or their sisters or their friends or their mothers. So that's what started me off. And it really, I was writing about Catherine of Aragon uh, and her first marriage with Prince Arthur, which you referred to with the, the disappeared carving, which might've been a record of their love. And I was thinking about her first experience on coming to England, in which her mother-in-law, Elizabeth of York, uh, married to Henry Tudor, Henry VII, was so significant in in a sense the choosing her as the Spanish princess, as the Spanish bride who was going to come to England, and in uh, making their life together meaningful and real, she, she agreed, uh, it was Elizabeth who agreed that they'd be sent off to Wales, so they could have their own kingdom, so they could practise being a young couple hopefully that they might fall in love and conceive a, a baby, an heir, but that also that they might have set time on their own away from the overwhelming pressure of the newly established Tudor court. So I was interested in her and that made me uh, interested in the uh, shocking story that she had actually been, prior to marrying a Tudor, she'd been in love with Richard III and that led me to, therefore, the circumstances of her childhood which led me to her mother and that is finally where we arrive at Elizabeth Woodville who is the first commoner to marry an English king. She marries him in the most suspicious of circumstances. They have known each other for six weeks from the first time they meet. To the first time they're married in most of which time he's not there he's offered a battle so people immediately said that she had either enchanted him by outrageous sensuality or she had entrapped him or she had enchanted him by witchcraft so immediately you've got a woman who is just my cup of tea so you go like what's going on there and i do believe that what was going on there was uh, certainly uh, a, a spiritual practice if not a witchcraft practice for her to uh, get the man that she wanted uh, and for her to uh, improve her position which was disastrous uh, as the widow of the, the losing side and from that she became Queen of England and that in its turn led me to her mother who was um, uh, a, married to the Regent of France as a young woman and certainly a practitioner of witchcraft. So you have this line of these women who have a connection to otherworldly practices, who believe that they can make things happen by wishing it, Uh, which is of course how uh, enslaved, impoverished, and people without authority manage their lives, that you have to have some belief, that you have some agency. And uh, they are both, you know, notable lovers, notably beautiful, notably sensual women, notably fertile women. So physically very strong as well, as well as being people who are accused of witchcraft.
0: And I think I, uh, it, it's Jacquetta, Duchess of Bedford, was her mother. And I loved the images in The White Queen of her winding the string around the tree trunk to sort of pull in Edward IV, which was the target. And I got the impression, listening to those passages and reading them in your, some of your other books, there's a kind of slight thread of, I don't know, magical realism, or this, there's something quite you seem to fasten on to. You call it spiritual, that sort of slightly otherworldly thread in history which, which gives another level
1: i agree i call it spiritual very much because i want people to understand that this isn't the sort of the the witchcraft of children's stories and it's not the witchcraft of uh, a sort of a fantasy uh, uh, it's not the terror of the witchfinders it's not cursing it's not done in dark and hidden places it's a practice which women mostly women but also it uh, depends when you look uh, prior to about the 1300s it's more men than women call themselves practicing witches and it's it's what it's what takes the place of science in a in a society with no science and no working medicine so it you're basically you're dependent upon herbalism on prayers and upon positive thinking and you know you don't know what makes things happen You don't even know what makes things fall. You know, there is no theory of gravity yet. You don't know how the world happens. You don't know what causes storms. You don't know, certainly you have no idea what causes plague or death. You're not completely sure about what causes pregnancy. Uh, You actually have a completely false theory about where life comes from. So it really opens the doors to people who think they know, or people who are prepared to pretend that they know, or people who genuinely believe that they can do things, and um, I, I think part of recovering the history of women involves you in recovering a history of witchcraft, because that's how people without power or knowledge or authority try to get things done.
0: And one of the scarier things about what you call the spiritual element of it is the curse, and and you've written a book called The King's Curse, and the extraordinary fact that. Elizabeth's two sons were the children killed in the tower, Mm -hmm. and subsequent to that she cursed that family, and and Henry's lifelong inability to produce an heir. And I think you've recently linked that to something called Kell's disease, which ironically, I suppose logically, may have come from Jaquetta, Elizabeth's mother, and resulted in the decimation of the children of Henry, and the subsequent pressure that put on him and his wives, who he proceeded to get rid of because they couldn't have children, but it's just possible. It had some sort of genetic basis. Uh,
1: What was wonderful about writing all of that is that it it came from different books as, firstly, uh, I understood that Elizabeth Woodville would have every reason to curse the Tudors because she believed at one time that Richard III had killed her sons. I don't think he did. I believe that she, in the end, didn't think he did, but certainly there's a moment where she thinks he does. Um, And that she would have that ability to, she would certainly have the belief in her ability to curse from her mother, who was uh, definitely a practicing uh, witch. We you know, she's found guilty of witchcraft, and we have some record of the things that she did of charms that she made. Uh, certainly, they're reported at a trial, her trial. So I had this idea that there was this curse, and that there was there's the reason for it to happen, and then. Uh, then you can see how it works its way through so the curse actually is is that they will lose their sons as Elizabeth Woodville lost her sons and that their line will end with a barren girl obviously Elizabeth first so it was one of those fictional moments where you go like wow I'm writing some fiction here that that really is inspired but fits so nicely with the history and that's that's why I, I write fiction you know I adore it when um, you know, when a curse comes off, you know, there's nothing nicer. So I went like, wow, that's so, that's so lovely in the sense of it's going to go all the way through these books and it's going to make internal sense. And then after I had written this curse, completely fictional curse, uh, I came across this evidence, which uh, American Doctor had produced um, of the fact that there was a genetic flaw Uh in the Tudors, which meant that uh, their children, uh, they tended to lose babies in infancy and stillbirth, uh, particularly sons. And I went, oh, that's amazing, That the fact that the medical record, not completely proven, but very suggestive, that there is a medical record which follows the same route as this curse that I invented. Uh, and then I discovered that the Kells disease uh, was inherited from jakarta so it came down the line that the curse came down, and it's it's moments like that that I'm literally glad to be alive. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just go kind of like, hmm, lovely. It's when you know it's, It is in a sense like archaeology. It's when the thing you find matches the thing that you're hoping for.
0: Just I'm going to move us on following that cursed line because I think the second time. Uh, or the first time I met up with you in 2004, we were at Sion Park. And Sion Park was the place where Henry's exploding, swelling coffin leaked blood on the floor, licked up by dogs, which in a sense, was it the, the fair maid of Kent who predicted that? Or was it just a b- biblical reference that he would it, end in that way?
1: It, it's certainly biblical. I can't think of a prophecy of it other than uh, than the old testament
0: and at sion when you and i were together there um, we actually were at the chapel where his body was left overnight i think what's your memories of sion park and and being with time team it was a big historical picture there wasn't it and the river and everything was beautiful place
1: it was huge. It was, I mean, firstly, it was an incredibly beautiful place, but also, and a very peaceful place, but it, it produced such a vivid picture of, it, in a sense, the, the disgrace of Henry's End. And I remember, uh, I remember the artist drawings of it, you know, the pictures of it, which were so powerful. And suddenly really realizing that uh, it was such a vivid, disgusting picture to end this kind of this great kingship moment. Um, But the other thing about Sion was that I was so interested in the nunnery which had been there uh, attached to the abbey and that it was at Sion that we found some pieces of spectacles which had belonged to a nun at the time. And I remember the archeologist that, I can't remember who it was, it was a young woman she'd been digging and she, she said to me, look, And I looked at them and I lifted them up and I looked through, the glass was gone, but the lenses were still there. They were like pince-nez, they would have been just popped on your nose. And I looked through them and I thought, I am looking through something that a late medieval woman looked through. I'm literally sort of seeing through her eyes. And it's one of those moments where history and the modern world just blend together and you realise also, in a sense that time is, as you know, physicists tell us, sort of meaningless. That there's something which belongs to then and here's me that belongs to now. And yet we're in the same, we're, we're looking through the same thing. It's extraordinary.
0: It's extraordinary. I always felt, when you were around, um, disappointed if I couldn't show you something. Uh, I, I, and I remember at Groby Old Hall, I, we found some caming from the stained glass, mm-hmm. and and it was I wanted to show it to you because of how you'd invested the belief in the characters, and and this was their life. And I think the stained the stained glass in the chapel was the chapel was it the chapel that Elizabeth had gone back to, or what was the relationship between the chapel and your story?
1: It was. It was where she came from before she um, before she met uh, the king. So she actually went out from Grubby Old Hall to meet him on the road. Uh, so it was it was her family home uh, of her, I believe, first husband. So she would have been there. And one of the things that I don't believe was ever widely discussed was that during the dig uh one of the archaeologists came to me and said like do you feel very connected here do you have a very strong feeling and i said i do but i know it's not science so i'm not going to go around going all sort of you know i've got a feeling but i do f- i i feel her here and uh, he said where in particular and i said oh i can tell you straight away that wall and the the path to the dig went past the chapel wall um we didn't know it was a chapel wall then I said there that's where I really that's my favorite place in the whole of the site that's where I feel her and uh, he said right we'll dig there and I went like well, you know, I'm not sure. It's just, a, you know, it's just the place I like the best. And uh, we did dig there and we found the Bible clasp. Do you remember the, the closes the books, the little metal Bible clasp that closes the books. And we realized then that it was a cloister towards the chapel on the other side of the wall where I liked, but it was that wall. And I mean, I get, sh- that gives me shivers even now. And I'm never, ever saying that, um, that sort of intuitive sense uh, should be tested, should be taken seriously, but it's always worth, I think, following a hunch. It's no more than that.
0: And I love the fact that it, it was interesting for me because I, we're, we're at the moment talking to the original members of Time Team and friends and saying, we're calling it the fantasy, fantasy site. And really, it's a kind of future specials. We did a lot of documentaries where we worked on the background of something and then did a three-day dig. So we had okay. more time. And I, and I was thinking, I wondered which site uh, that you would like, if you had your own archaeological unit, which in a way you do, if you could <laughs> take time, team along. Karenza sends her regards, by the way. And if we all got together, got in a trek and said, right, Philippa wants us to go to and work on this site. There's two sites that I related to when I was looking this up. One was the Battle of Tewkesbury, which it seems is not that well known. People know about Towton, where they found burial pits and all sorts of things. But Tewkesbury was really a critical battle in the Wars of the Roses, probably the penultimate battle and and that site has had relatively little work done on it. Is that a location that would appeal to you? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. I mean, it can't not. I mean, I think the Wars of the Roses battles, the battle sites have been a bit neglected because, uh, in a sense, the Wars of the Roses tend to get a bit obscured by the English Civil War that comes after it. So they are neglected. And also the the death rate is so appalling during the Wars of the Roses at Tewkesbury, especially, that you know you're bound to have a lot of historical remains there. And also part of overcoming a, a civil war, as the Wars of the Roses were, is that uh, everybody gets back to normal as quickly as possible. So you don't have a big memorialization of it. So I think it, they, they would be very, very interesting. Um, I, I think really you could go back to grooby and, you know, find some wonderful stuff.
0: And I'm um, sorry, I've been, sorry. Am- Amptil is another place that, that has come up, which which is link with Catherine of Aragon, who I think is possibly one of your favourite characters. Again, relatively little known. She survived, she didn't, she wasn't actually killed by Henry VIII, which was a sort of miracle in a way. Oh, heartbreak.
1: Yeah. Like, I, I count, I, I blame him for it, I really do. You <laughs> know, I think uh, the courage that it took to confront him and constantly resist him. That's extraordinary. But if you were looking at somewhere, I mean, there's, a, there's quite a suggestion that, uh, there, that there were bodies found at the Tower of London, which may or may not be the princes. Personally, I think they are not. But uh, there's a very clear suggestion of where they were found. It would be very interesting to do a dig at the Tower of London. Why not? If this is a fantasy dig, why don't we dig the Tower of London and see if we can find for sure uh, the room where the princes were kept. We're pretty sure we know where it was. But if that was so where the stair was, where they were said to be buried.
0: I think going back to Tewkesbury, <clears throat> one of the things very memorably in your book was that moment that Edward IV, who, you know, is the, the king in splendor, he's married for love, and yet, my God, he's got that Yorkist desire to finish off his enemies when he's got them. And I think Somerset and the others are in Tewkesbury Abbey, which still exists. And he has a choice about them and a choice about Clarence. And in both cases, clemency doesn't come into it.
1: No, I mean, I think the thing about Edward and, you know, his brother is that his brother betrays him multiple times Mm -hmm. and the, the, the point at which they tip, interestingly enough, is uh, a point over witchcraft, that his brother is said to have hired a wizard and they're predicting the king's death and they're said to be trying to cause the king's death. And I think there's a point at which, I mean, I think Edward was extremely affectionate towards his younger brothers, and he had a very profound sense of family loyalty, um, which you see in the fact that he never turns on Richard, even when there's a real sense that Richard has lost loyalty towards that royal family and towards that line. You know, the divisions between them are very strong, but Edward never turns away from his younger brother. But I think Clarence, I mean, is he just, never stops. You're never sure what Clarence is doing, but it's almost always some kind of complicated temptation to get to the throne. I mean, it's, it's second son syndrome, <laughs> only far worse than anything we've ever seen.
0: And of, and of all those characters, I, uh, I've got many, many questions, because Elizabeth I seems to me that kind of strong woman who you followed, in i think the virgin bride was it
1: virgins lover yes
0: virgins Um, lover yeah and
1: then very much so a very jaundiced view of her i have to say in the book the last tudor where actually the research shocked me where i found that she she either killed or imprisoned or led to the deaths of all her cousins I mean it's she also she is someone who is so frightened herself is brought up so much uh as a girl in a in a court of I mean I believe she's brought up by a psychopath I think Henry VIII in his latter years is a serial killer and we do ourselves a great disservice if we if we find his behavior sort of funny so he's taught in English primary schools today as Henry VIII, the man who had six wives. I believe he should be taught as Henry VIII, the man who serially killed all of his friends and all of his advisers and all of the women who stood up against him in any way or failed to deliver what he wanted. I mean he's a monster and that's Elizabeth's father. So I think what you have there is someone who is truly psychologically damaged from childhood, and who then never feel safe, never feel safe enough to love anybody, never feel safe enough to marry anybody, never feel safe in her relations, in her family, because they are all potential heirs. And you know, the Grey sisters, Jane Grey and her two sisters, um, were really no serious threat to Elizabeth during her lifetime, but they would have inherited after her. And when they had boys, who would therefore be an obviously attractive heir, it was like the end of their lives.
0: And I think if anybody wants a sort of balancing view of the jolly Henry VIII with his wives, your um, Taming of the Queen, which which covers the life of Catherine Parr, is an incredibly um, memorable, very emotive, Uh, story of a woman crushed by a psychopath or attempted to be crushed by him.
1: There's so much about Catherine Parr that I absolutely love. Firstly, in traditional history, she's set up to be his last wife and the nurse and you know, provider, carer for his old age and it, she isn't like that, she was never like that. We do have some uh, sort of pharmaceutical records from her but they're all perfume and bath oils and lovely glamorous things. She's not nursing him in any serious way. What she does par excellence is she manages him. So she they actually have the guards at the door of the garden to arrest her for heresy and therefore treason and that carries a death sentence and she turns it around. I mean, she is just magnificently brave. And it's not that she isn't guilty. Uh, She is undoubtedly leading the reform party at court as Cranmer is leading the reform party in the country.
0: She wrote books, she she published books. She was a very literate queen and she survived the old sod really. (laughs)
1: Uh, her story is actually probably the only story of uh, a happy wife of Henry, that she endures marriage with him. It's not a very long marriage because he is at the end of his life, though nobody knows it at the time. He's uh, energetic enough and he's virile enough to hope to conceive a child on her. And he's virile enough that when he writes his will, he provides for the heirs of wives after her. So. Even while they're married, he is looking ahead to what might come next. And she's number six. Uh, he actually courts a lady in waiting at her court. He's looking out for number seven while he's married to her. Uh, she's young enough to be his daughter. Uh, she survives him by incredible skill and management and by courage. So when they come to arrest her for heresy and treason, which carries a death sentence with it, she literally, she faces them down and they don't take her away. And for the rest of her life, she has the courage to go on uh, thinking about the reform of religion. She is much more Protestant uh, than Henry and she writes. And so she's the first woman to publish in the English language uh, and she's the first woman to publish under her own name. She doesn't publish anonymously. After his death she's free to publish and very very romantically after his death she marries the man that she loved all along uh, Thomas Seymour and he takes her to Sudley Castle where she's buried. She died in childbirth uh, which was obviously the fate of so many women in the pre-modern period and uh, she died having only be married to the man that she loved for a year. It's, oh. it's, it's very tragic in that sense, but all history is when do you stop the clock? So in my novel about her, I stop the clock when, she, when Henry dies and she escapes this dangerous marriage uh, with a murderer uh, and he's able to marry the man
0: she loves. And I know that um, I've read a, a little bit around Tidelands. And there, you've now changed historical um, period. And I I know you wrote very well, uh, there's there's a very nice, very explanatory bit at the end of one of your books in which you talk about the transition from the great and the good, as Mick used to call them, to ordinary Mm -hmm. people, which is quite a thing. I'd, I'd be a bit bereft, lost, if I abandoned all those amazing characters but you've made that decision to find ordinary, often the strong women in difficult situations. She, I think your character gets accused of being a witch and is dunked on a water wheel, which is an incredibly memorable scene. What what drove that transition?
1: I think in a sense, I was, I was always in my own mind writing about interesting women. Uh, it happened that the ones that were recorded were related to great and good that in a sense there are very very there are very little records of the lives of ordinary women in the Tudor period if you want to get any records of a life from birth till death you're going to be working in the upper classes and your job's going to be a lot easier if you're looking at royalty. For instance, someone like Anne Boleyn, as enormous as she looms in British history, we don't actually have an accurate date of birth for her nobody recorded her birth. They didn't know she was going to be Anne Boleyn, crying out "Ah, we want to know. They didn't know it was that important at the time. Uh, So we literally don't know her date of birth. We don't know much about her childhood. We know she went to France and that she was in service uh, for the royalty here. But it's only when she enters the court that she enters the written record when you start finding her in uh, the wardrobe records, where you start actually getting something that you can get a grip on, like we know what that she was at a particular party because we know what dress was issued to her. It's stuff like that that really makes a novel come alive. And so if you want to write a historical novel on the record about Tudor women, you're really pretty well confined to the, you know, the very, very higher levels of the upper classes. But that's, it's not that I wanted to write about kings and queens and prince and princesses. It was that I knew what they were doing. So when I came to fictionalize the record, I had a record to fictionalize. Then I came to a point where I went like, I, I you know, I'm really done with, with palaces. You know, they're great. They're wonderful. I've loved being there, but I actually want to be a little bit more with, the vast majority of people ordinary people so i'm doing two things at the moment i'm writing a non-fiction i'm writing a history of english women uh, which isn't very much about the great people it's supposed to be about normal women by which i mean everybody who calls themselves a woman and normal lives in the sense of not none of these lives are officially exceptional but all of them are completely extraordinary because they are lives that we don't know about. So they are women uh, housewives, but almost all of them are also spinners or entrepreneurs or uh, they're negotiating loans or they're highway women or they're fences, you know, or they're criminals or they're prostitutes or they're in service, which pretty well means you're in part-time prostitution. Every, all of these lives that we think of as being just a housewife it's always and they're doing something else as well because that's how you survive uh, before uh, that before women can earn a wage which can keep them so i'm very so my attention always was on ordinary women doing exceptional things as part of a normal life and uh, i just had the courage to step away from the historical records which are available and go like i'm going to Make a composite character from all the records that I have. So I know quite a lot about midwives in the seventeenth century because uh, the male physicians are trying to exclude women from practice. so you you get a lot of reports about what women are doing wrong from their male competitors. so it doesn't matter that the source is in a sense quite corrupt you're still getting a lot of reports of what they're doing so i know a bit about that i know about women in the um english civil war because people have written histories of english civil war in which they cannot help but refer to women holding sieges and women's part in running their land and the estates when the men go away so what i decided to do was instead of leaning on a record of a known woman whose life had been recorded, was look at all the other, in all the different places, records about women and put that together to say, here is my representative woman. Here is my metaphor for a woman of, and then, in a sense imbue her with the love and the imaginative life which I bring to all of my historical characters because even someone like Elizabeth I, my Elizabeth I is not like anybody else's Elizabeth I, all historians look at the record and then in a sense construct a character and it's always fiction. One of the great secrets of history, uh, which has been a secret for far too long, is that all historians work in fiction also because they all get an idea of a person and we all get a different idea. You can see it's fiction because we all end up with a different idea. My Thomas Cromwell is not Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell and much the better are both of our Thomas Cromwells for that. My Anne Boleyn, people didn't even see. My, My Mary Boleyn, people didn't even know existed. The record was there, but nobody had imbued her with the sort of liveliness that you can do when you look at a character and say, well, what was she really like? And that's exactly what a novelist has to do in order to write a novel worth reading. And it's what a historian has to do as well.
0: And very excitingly, uh, I'm sure for people listening, your new book Dark Tides, which is the second part of that sort of 17th century Civil War period, taking those characters on, and there's an American connection with that?
1: Well, what's lovely about it is that it's the second book in the series, and what I'm hopefully going to build is a sort of a family through time. And so this family starts off in, uh, actually it's Pagham Harbour, south of Chichester. So they start in very, very humble circumstances in the mud of Pagham Harbour with uh, a character who's working as a midwife. And in book two, uh, spoiler alert, so don't listen if you haven't read book one yet, but in book two, they arrive uh, on the poor side of the Thames, on the south bank of the Thames, and they're wharfingers. So they've got a very small, Warehouse and they've got the coastal trade coming in. So they're still extremely poor, but they've made the jump into trade and uh, the My heroine's brother who was always a parliamentarian can't live in the restoration So the restoration happens and he leaves England and he goes to the New England He goes to America and he settles in what is now Connecticut and so immediately the things that I'm really fascinated about, which is about how do you live in a just society? How do you create a just society? He goes there to make that and finds himself immediately caught up in a war against the Native Americans who uh, initially welcome the Pilgrim Fathers in the Mayfair and are hospitable to them, not realising that what they're basically doing is nurturing a cuckoo. That the influx of English and Europeans into America becomes intolerable, becomes unsustainable. And uh, so we are just uh, a year before King Philip's War, uh, one of the most major uh, killing wars ever on American soil. And Ned goes there with the finest hopes and the finest intentions to make a new England uh, in the really a levelless England, a digger in a leveller's England, a parliamentary England of justice and equality, and finds himself yet again in a society which oppresses people, in this case, the Native Americans. So it's, it's, uh, it's the ongoing story of this family who don't fit well in their society. And I feel for them so much because I think lots of people don't fit very well in their society. And lots of us end up being historians or novelists or artists or philosophers because what we have to come to terms with all the time is the sense that our times don't quite fit us.
0: I uh, would like to at some point or other in the future know the site that he might have lived on. We we dug at St Mary's City and we actually found burials of the settlers and we could distinguish between the different burials because of the analysis of the oxygen isotope from their diet with American scientists, which we can do now. Um, But it would be lovely to think of the kind of place he might have lived and perhaps do some work on that. I've got a couple of final questions uh, because we've been had a wonderful talk. I don't want to go on for too long, but um, time team. We've got the original team, um, some of whom are very keen to mentor or work with the next generation, if you like. Do you think it there's a good reason for bringing time team back?
1: Oh, I'd love it to come back, <laughs> but you know that's that's a completely selfish like i I would love it to come back, and wherever you are, I'll come, and if I don't know anything about it, I'll study up <laughs> like it would be heaven i mean i it was just um leaving completely aside the fact that it was a fascinating television series which meant so much to people who liked it. Uh, as the experience of going on digs and working that intensely with people at the very top of their field, I mean it's, it was a privilege. It was a privilege, uh, you know, bring it back and I'll be there.
0: And finally one object that you would like us to find, we found the book clasp that belonged yeah. to Elizabeth Woodville. A bit like Neil McGregor's lovely series of History and 100 Objects, if you assembled a set of objects alongside all your characters, is there one particular one that, the, a particular set of objects, or somebody's, somebody's possessions, something that you would love to hold, if you like?
1: I would like to hold uh, cramp rings or a charm uh, which belong to Duchess of Bedford, or her daughter Elizabeth Woodville, or her daughter Elizabeth of York. And there will be that those things will undoubtedly exist. Uh, I think they would be imbued with an extraordinary, extraordinary, innate power. If you believe in such things, she said quickly, if you happen to be so hippy-dippy that you have any belief in those sorts of things, I would love to hold something like that.
0: Well I certainly hope at some point in the not too near future we might just be able to do that for you and uh, thank you very much for a lovely insight to uh, your books and, and uh, the, the current books you're writing and also that big change you're, ma- you're making at the moment so it's been charming talking to you and um, we should talk a little bit more about some of Time Team's details in the future. The, the, we, you did programmes on the Wars of the Roses, Henry's Palaces, four programmes with us. So maybe if we have time, we can have another chat at some point.
1: That'd be lovely. I really, really enjoyed it. It's, it's just great. It's, it's, it is itself a history.
0: To ensure you catch all the latest updates, please do subscribe to this channel, follow us on social media, sign up to our newsletter, and join us on Patreon.